Let's pray as we stand. Father, as we come to your word now, as we come to be with your people and gather together after a week of building your house, Lord, we ask that you might encourage us as we come to this passage to keep going, to persevere in working and serving for you. But more than anything, help us to fix our eyes on Christ, to fix our eyes on all of your promises, which are yes and amen in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please do grab a seat. Uh, And if you were with us last week, uh, then you'll know that we've begun the book of Haggai and our series, Consider Your Ways where we saw God's challenge to stop pursuing our own selfish building projects and to instead accept his invitation to be a part of his building project for this world, to prioritise the building of God's house ahead of our own. By the end of chapter 1, we saw Haggai's fairly strong words had been received fairly well. The Israelites had accepted God's challenge to their priorities and they had obeyed his commands to build his house as they came together to begin work on the Lord's temple in chapter 1, verse 15. Do keep the book of Haggai open in front of you, page 948. But as we pick up the story just four weeks into the building project at the start of chapter 2, even at this very early stage, some discouragements are beginning to set in that could slow the building of the temple down or or could even lead to some giving up on the project altogether. And just as there were discouragements for the Israelites as they worked on the Lord's temple, that there can be challenges, obstacles as we work to build God's church today. We saw last week that to be involved in God's building project today is no longer to go and build a physical temple in Jerusalem. No, instead it is to see that Christ has come as the fulfillment of God's temple. He is where God's presence dwells. And amazingly, if we trust in him, not only does he make us a part of his house, but he also invites us to partner with him in building his house, his church today and I wonder how have you found building God's church over the past week perhaps you tried to play your part in pulling in a new brick to God's house by sharing the gospel with a friend or a colleague and it it just didn't go very well Maybe you went into Monday with a desire, I'm going to prioritize the Lord. This is going to be the week where I build his house. But then life happened. And by Wednesday, it was just about surviving until the weekend. Or maybe as you read the news, you came across the latest church scandal and it's, it's just left you really discouraged at the state of the church in this country or in the world around us. There can be some weeks where Building God's house can just feel really discouraging. And so as we come to Haggai's second sermon, as we again consider our ways, my prayer is that we might find encouragement in our passage to persevere so so that we might continue to play our part in building God's church today. That even in the face of discouragement 
and difficulty, we might be able to take confidence that the Lord will complete the good work that he has begun because he has promised to build his church. Our first point this morning, looking back and comparing. Looking back and comparing. The first danger the Israelites have that could discourage them from being involved in God's building project for the world is that they look back and compare the work they're involved in now to the glory days. Look down with me at verse 1 to 3 of chapter 2. In the second year of King Darius, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Josedat, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? Just a few weeks into the project, and it was already clear that the, the temple the people were working on, it was never going to live up to what it was in Solomon's day. In Solomon's day, the prosperity of the nation meant that the temple was elaborate and ornate. Ancient Israel was the summer holiday destination for royals like the Queen of Sheba. But after the exile to Babylon, well, the country just wasn't what it used to be. They didn't have the same wealth or status. They didn't even have a king anymore. They, they just had a governor, Zerubbabel. And sure, he was from the line of the kings, from the line of David, but he was only allowed a tiny bit of power as governor of Judah, as a small cog in the Persian Empire. And okay, the temple might have had similar dimensions to Solomon's, but the reality was, just four weeks in, they knew it was going to be a shadow of its former glory. Sixteen years before, the foundations of the new temple had been laid, and, and those that were younger rejoiced. But for those who had seen the glory days of Solomon's temple, those foundations, just the foundations were a source of grief to them. Because it wasn't as good as the temple they remembered. Ezra chapter 3, 11 and 12 says this. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. While many others shouted for joy. It's not like it was in my day, many must have thought. And in verse 3 of our passage, it, it seems that 16 years on, even though the people have come together with enthusiasm to build God's temple once again after Haggai's challenge, even though they are at hard at work building the temple again, there, there's many who can't help but compare the temple to what it used to be. You can imagine the comments. Things just aren't what they used to be. Back in the good old days, it's not like it was in my day. They, they just don't make them like they used to. Uh, so at the start of chapter 2, it seems as though the initial excitement to build the temple has begun to fade. Bitterness has set in. Morale's taken a hit. Nostalgia has taken over. And maybe people are just starting to take a step back from the project. It's, 
It's not like it was in my day. It's clear to see how looking back and comparing could have discouraged God's people from throwing themselves into God's building project back then. Uh, How comments like this might even have led to people giving up, downing tools. It's easy to see how the same could still be true for us today as we are involved in building God's church. Maybe you get this feeling as you, you look back on your own personal walk with the Lord and you compare. You look back at maybe many years, at a particular time in your life where there was rapid spiritual growth, maybe when you first became a Christian. Everything seemed so new and exciting. But compared to now, having walked with the Lord a while, you, you often feel like you're just going through the motions. Things just seem so samey, slow, sometimes a bit boring. It's not like it used to be. Or maybe you look back at a small group or a ministry you used to be a part of where you could really clearly see that the Lord was at work. How exciting your church youth group was. How the Lord led people to faith in your student days through the Christian Union or or the deep bonds that you used to share with an old home group. But since you moved to Cornerstone, okay, you've got involved in a small group, but it's just not quite got the same buzz that it used to. Maybe you find yourself doing this in other ways as you think back to a time in the life of this church, of Cornerstone, thinking back to the good old days of life at the school, of one morning service, or of 50-minute sermons, or of a church size where it felt easier to feel like church family and, and not get lost in a sea of strangers. You find yourself sad as you look back and compare. It's never going to be what it once was. Or maybe we look back and compare the generation coming through uh, to when we were their age. I'm the ripe old age of 26, and I have to confess that I already find this a danger. I was speaking at a Christian union outside of Nottingham last year, and they they hadn't brought a single Bible to the event. They hadn't really thought about how they were going to follow up. Nothing that RCUs in Nottingham would ever do. Uh, And my ugly, self-righteous heart revealed itself with thoughts of, oh, this is... This is the generation we've got to depend on for the building of God's church. Back when I was a student, we we were just so much keener, so much more committed, so much more thoughtful about it. If only the students of today were more like, when the reality is that I'm just looking back on my own student days through rose-tinted, nostalgic glasses, remembering the times where I sacrificed and served whilst omitting some of the car crash CU events that I helped to plan and the obscene amount of Call of Duty that I spent playing. I have to say, since joining Cornerstone, I've been so thankful. This is a church where we we honour the legacy of those who have gone before us. But we also have an eye on the next generation, a hope, an expectancy for what God is going to do in the future. But let's continue to be wary of how easily, how quickly self-righteousness can set in in our own hearts. Let's be wary that our view of God, of how God has worked in the past, doesn't discourage us or others from seeing that God is still at work building his church today. And let's be wary of creating a culture in our church where the glory days are long gone behind us. Even if, like the temple in Haggai, there are things from the past that are simply better than they are now. 
Let's instead be a church where we encourage one another to keep persevering by faith, reminding one another that if we are in Christ, then for each of us in this room, no matter how young or old we are, the best is always yet to come. That if we are trusting in Christ, then gloriously our best days always lie ahead of us and never behind us. The first danger that could discourage us from being involved in God's building project is looking back and comparing. The second is looking out and despairing. I've spent too much time with John Russell. You're going to see with point three as well. Uh, Last year, uh, Ruth and I bought our first house. One of the very first jobs that we did was to sand down and varnish the old wooden floorboards. It, It took almost a week of annual leave to get them smooth, lovely, Uh, But after a lot of sweat, grit, inhaled sawdust, probably several years off my life, uh, we had a floor that we could be proud of. But then just over a year on, November, uh, we discovered that some dry rot had grown under the floor. And with it, a significant amount of our hard work ruined. Those beautifully sanded floorboards. They all had to come out, up, be thrown out, and I just wanted to despair. Sell the house, pack it all in. I never want to stand on a floor again were the kinds of dramatic thoughts running through my head as I just looked out on our house. Dry rot. That wasn't part of the plan. Despair set in, and the temptation to give up on this house was altogether very real. That doesn't seem to be a million miles away from how the Israelites are feeling by the end of verse 3. Looking back and comparing, that's already dented morale. But it seems as though they're at the point in the building project where they're looking out and they're tempted to despair. They look out at their circumstances and the temptation is, let's pack it all in before we invest anymore. But then the Lord says this in verse 4 and 5. But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. In these verses, God isn't patronizing them by saying how wonderful their temple is looking. He even says in verse 3, it's not as good as Solomon's temple. But instead, he gives them several encouragements that they can hold on to. Encouragements that can help the people to keep going. Promises that the people could cling to. And promises that we too can hold on to as we are involved in building God's church today. Maybe Zerubbabel was looking out and despairing because he'd begun to think that building God's uh, project, his house, depended all on him. Lord, there's so much to do. Plans to be made, people to be organized, ministry to be done, and and that's just the temple building. Don't you remember? I'm I'm also governor of Judah. Got other responsibilities there. What, What about my family? I'm trying to build your house, Lord, but I'm just being pulled in so many directions, it doesn't feel like I can ever give you my best. What is God's encouragement? Be strong. Work, Zerubbabel. Why? 
for I am with you. God commands Zerubbabel to be strong. He commands him to keep working, but this isn't a kind of, come on, I know you've got it in you kind of strength. Zerubbabel is he's not to look within and summon up some special superhuman strength. No, instead, he is to change his perspective. Instead of looking out and being tempted to despair, the Lord wants Zerubbabel to look up, to look to the Lord, to, to feel the relief. This is his building project, not ours. That he is with Zerubbabel, that he is for Zerubbabel. And if God is for us, then who can be against us? Ian Dugweed writes, God's people are to do what they can in obedience to God's commands. Not to wring their hands over what they cannot do. Or maybe Joshua the high priest, maybe he'd begun to despair because he's, he's worried God's abandoned him. And he had better reason to think that than most. Uh, before the Babylonians took the people of Judah into exile, God had sent another of his prophets, Ezekiel, a vision that you could read about in Ezekiel chapter 10, uh, where it shows that, that God's presence had departed from the temple because of a nation's repeated sin and, and their refusal to repent. And so maybe Joshua is tempted to despair because he's wondering, are you really with us, Lord? Or, or is the reason we're struggling to make progress because you've abandoned us? I don't know if you've seen, Lord, but we're putting quite a lot of time and energy into this. And I have to confess, there's times where I wonder, are you still with me? What is God's answer? Be strong, Joshua. Work. Why? For I am with you, verse 4 and my spirit remains among you, verse 5. God reassured Joshua he had not abandoned him. His spirit was still with him. And, and if you are trusting in Jesus this morning, then you can know with certainty God will never abandon or forsake you, even if your circumstances might suggest otherwise. If you want to know that God is with you, don't look to your circumstances. Don't depend on your feelings. Instead, hear the promise of God. I am with you, declares the Lord. My spirit remains among you. If you really want to know that God is with you, then look to the cross. Matt Smith first writes this. When Satan tempts you to despair, to fear that God has forgotten or forsaken you, ponder anew the eternal chasm that Calvary closed. Colin Webster, one of our ministers, is, is one of the most encouraging people that I have ever met. Uh, he regularly goes out of his way to encourage others. He will walk into a room where heads are down and lift it. Uh, there are even times when he is in his office and I hear him sneeze from next door and it brings a smile to my face. That The man even has an encouraging sneeze. And at a time where it is so easy to be discouraged as we strive to build God's church today, we need to be a church family that encourages one another. That doesn't mean we should never challenge each other. But it does mean that we should strive for a church culture to be overwhelmingly one of encouragement, of building up. When we've had a discouraging week of trying to build God's church, we, we should be able to know that we can come together and encourage one another with the truths we've been looking at. God is with us. He's not abandoned us. We can, 
be strong and keep working in his strength even when things look bleak. Why not do that after the service today? Because church is not just rocking up on a Sunday, coming to one service and then going and doing everything on your own. No, church is more than that. It is family. So why not Stick around if you're able to after the service. Or find some time this week. Maybe share with someone what you're finding hard about building God's church at the moment. Or go out of your way to encourage someone to keep going, to lift their eyes, to hold on to those wonderful promises of God in verse 4 and 5. We've seen two things that could lead us to becoming discouraged, giving up on God's building project for this world. But instead of looking back and comparing... Uh, Instead of looking out and despairing, in verse 6 to 9, we see a final encouragement. Looking forward, the Lord's declaring. God gives us a a declaration concerning the direction that his building project is going to take in verses 6 to 9. Using language that might not be in keeping with the latest building regs. Uh, Look with me at verse 6 to 9. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, what in a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. In my experience, shaking and building projects are not a good combination. Generally, if shaking is occurring in your building, you want to get a builder in fast. But in these verses, God twice says that he will shake creation. The shaking of creation is it's something that happens throughout the Old Testament and it typically happens when God speaks or appears on the scene. And in particular, it is used in reference to what is called the day of the Lord, the day when God will come to bring his final judgment against sin and bring in, usher in his perfect new creation. And so here, God is declaring to his people that he is going to come himself. He is going to make this building project a success. I mean, just notice how many times God repeats the phrase, I will, in these verses. Uh, And notice what he says will happen when he comes. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. And in this place, I will grant peace. Those are incredible declarations of God for the people to hold on to. God is going to come. He is going to make this temple glorious. This temple will be better than the former. This temple will bring what all nations desire. This temple will bring peace. Because God has promised. You can imagine how inspiring those words must have been for the people to keep working. Uh, And spoiler alert, they they do end up finishing this temple. Uh, But when they finish it in 515 BC, it's, it's not more glorious than Solomon's temple used to be. And so the people might have been a bit confused 
Uh, but, but they could wait. God has promised to come and make this temple more glorious. Uh, we've just got to wait. We've got to wait for the day of the Lord. But a few centuries pass. And, and if anything, the temple that they had built becomes less glorious, not more glorious. Someone called Antiochus Epiphanes comes and plunders it of anything valuable, desecrates it. Uh, Then the Romans take over, plunder the temple again of anything worth of value, silver and gold. God's people must have been really discouraged then. But God has promised. Uh, And so then under Herod the Great, uh, the Herod we often remember at Christmas time, uh, the temple was renovated, expanded, so that in Jesus' day it, it looked more glorious than it had done for a long while. Uh, But then, after a rebellion against Rome, even that renovated and renewed temple, it was raised to the ground in 70 AD, so that all all that remains of it today is the wailing wall in Jerusalem. Uh, If anything, the temple is a sign of sorrow and of violence, not of glory and of peace that Haggai has promised here, but God has promised And that's because when God had promised to shake all nations, when he had made these wonderful promises about the day of the Lord, of a more glorious temple that would bring peace, he hadn't been referring to a building. He'd been referring to his son, to Jesus. Look with me at John chapter 2, verse 19 to 22. It'll appear on the screen, and it says this. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, referring to Herod's renovations. And you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's declaration in Haggai chapter 2. He is the earth-shaking temple that the Israelites were to look forward to. He is the more glorious temple that had been promised, a temple that would bring peace for those from all nations as he died on a cross. His coming signaled that the day of the Lord had arrived, that the time for judgment of sin, of new life, had come. And that both of those things would be achieved by his death on the cross. Matthew chapter 27, verses 50 to 52 says this of Jesus' death. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook The rocks split and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. Jesus' death meant a more glorious temple had come, a a temple where the temple curtain had been torn in two from top to bottom, showing that our sin had been paid for, that God had judged Jesus in our place if we've put our trust in him, so that for all of us who have done that, we might have peace with our creator and approach his presence, his temple, without fear. The day of the Lord had arrived. As the rocks shook, and we read that strange detail about the holy people who come back to life, it was a sign 
of what Jesus' death had achieved, new creation life for all who put their trust in the Lord was available, was here. The day of the Lord had arrived. These promises that we read about in Haggai 2, 6 to 9, are available to us now, today, in Jesus. He is the earth-shaking, more glorious temple who has brought us peace with our creator. You can have forgiveness for any sin, any shame, because Jesus has been judged in your place and new eternal life is available in him. And you can receive, we can receive those promises today with certainty now. But the full realization, experience of our forgiveness and new life, the full reality of those things is not something that we yet enjoy. We may have forgiveness and new life now in Jesus, but we still live in a world full of sin brokenness, suffering, and so we, like the people at the time of Haggai, still have to look forward to a day that the Lord has declared will come. We still have to wait because there is still one final shaking for us to look forward to and be encouraged by. I realize I've quoted a lot from him these past two weeks, but he's, he's just so quotable. Ian Dugweed writes this. In Christ, at the cross, God has already shaken the entire world order. Yet we also look forward to the world shaking that is still to come when God will bring all of history to its consummation in Christ. God has already established his kingdom, manifested his glory and given us peace. But there is a day coming when God's kingdom will be fully and finally established, when his glory will fill the world and his peace will reign forevermore. This too is an antidote to our temptation to despair. The rubble that surrounds us in our lives and in our churches is not the end of the story. There is more to come. A cosmically happy ending in which all of Christ's people will be transformed by him into his likeness. That day is coming. Because God has promised, declared that it is coming... And so instead of looking back and comparing, instead of looking out and despairing, we can encourage one another to look forward to the day of the Lord's declaring. The day that God has promised will come. That future hope that we have can help us to be those who continue to work on God's building project for this world. Knowing that when Jesus comes again, he will right every wrong in this world and bring us into his new creation. So we might enjoy everlasting peace in his kingdom forever. A kingdom that the writer to the Hebrews describes in chapter 12, verse 28, as a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let me pray. Father, we confess that we are so prone to navel-gazing. We're so prone to despair of discouragement as we work on your project for the world. Father, help us to fix our eyes on your promises. Help us to fix our eyes on the day that is coming. Or you will bring us to be with you into your presence forever. 
Father, help us to be a people that encourage one another with the truths of your word to keep going, even when things don't look the way that we want them to look, trusting that you have promised. You have promised that your temple will be a success. And as we look back to the Lord Jesus, Father, help us to see in him that you have guaranteed the success of your building project. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.